This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 479. And the quote of the day is, Music is about imagination. It's about thought. It's about creating something from nothing. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. 479 coming at you. It's Nick Ruffini. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast. Thanks for being here. And if this is your first episode you've ever listened to, uh, I appreciate it. And I'm always interested how people found out about the podcast. So if you're a new listener or whatever, I don't know, if you've been listening for a long time, shoot me a message or hit me up on social. I'm always interested to hear how people are finding out about the podcast and how we can let more people know about the podcast, obviously. So uh, hit me up, let me know, and we're going to get into this. This is a great conversation that I had with David Frangioni. So he had, David has had a really interesting career. He started as a drummer and then got into technology and in, you know, in the 80s and started working with MIDI. And then Aerosmith brought them into their camp as their in-house engineer and technologist from 89 to 2002. And he's worked with all sorts of different people from Elton John and Ringo Starr and Sting and Carl Palmer and Brian Adams. But he's also like studied with Joe Morello and studied with Alan Dawson and all these other people and has gone on to create charities and all sorts of different things. He's written books and, and we get into all of it. And the, the most amazing part is the, the, the topic of the, uh, or the, you know, the title of this episode is creating something from nothing. And, and we talk about that a lot and how hard work pays off and how you can create sort of your own, your own destiny and, and how you take an idea literally and the next day, how you start working on that idea. And that's something I think is extremely important about, okay, you have this thing that you want to start or build or, or create. What do you do on day one to start working towards that? So David unpacks a lot of that as well. So there are all sorts of golden nuggets in here that you, that you're going to want to pick out and you may rewind it and, and re-listen a few times with a very inspiring story and a very, uh, I think there's a lot of tactical advice in here too. So, I'm excited to share this with you. Let's get into it with David Frangioni. David, how are you? Thanks so much for being here. Great to be here, Nick. Doing well. So I read I read something that was that was really interesting about you that you started you started playing drums when you were two years old. Yeah, that's right. Around two years old. I actually had thought it was around eight, but I was going through some old pictures about 15 years ago, and I actually found pictures of my playing the drums when I was uh, a little under two. And, really? Um, as it turns out, at the same time that I got into drumming, which obviously was through my parents' support at that age that they got me a drum set. I don't exactly know why. They're not with us anymore, so I'm not able to – to really get to the bottom of, of why I started playing so young and why they had the inkling that I should, um, should have the drums. And, um, uh, you know, but they were right clearly because, um, I really, you know, it's, it's in my blood, it's my passion. And at the same time that I started playing with these toy drums and yellow pages, et cetera, I got retinoblastoma, which is cancer of the eye. 
And as a result, it was in my right eye. So they had to remove my right eye, put a prosthetic in. I've been blind ever since in my right eye. And music and drumming really became a refuge at a very young age and played such a critical role to deal with the trauma and my childhood and uh, ended up shaping my entire life. Hmm. That's an interesting so, – so I guess – so you don't remember actually playing drums at two. And the reason why I ask is some – like I don't have many memories before five years old. You know, none none that I can think of. And but some people are like, no, I remember, you know, being two years old and, and sitting behind the kit, which I always always blows my mind. Uh but you don't have you don't actually have the memories, you just have the, the pictures and you found that you found and said, Oh, okay, I guess I was playing earlier than eight. Exactly. My memories of playing the drums start more like seven or eight years old, and I really have pretty vivid memories of being really interested and playing a practice pad at uh, in elementary school and performing, standing up, you know, snare drum, uh, you know, sheet music that we did as as a you know a little class of drummers in front of the you know the fifth grade or the sixth grade, mm-hmm. and then went from the practice pad to multiple yellow pages where I'd set them up as snare drum and two toms. And my parents took, uh, were very supportive, and I went to Lexington Music Center, which was next to Arlington, where I grew up in Boston, and um, took drum lessons from Mr. Woolley every Saturday at 1 o'clock. And after about six months or so, my parents were able to save up and get me a used Rogers Pink Champagne four-piece drum kit. And that's where it started, where nice. I was really able to practice and play an actual drum set and it was just the most exciting moment i'll never forget it It, they surprised me with it and just the transition from playing the yellow pages to actually playing a drum kit like buddy rich and carl palmer and my drum heroes of that time in the 70s the mid 70s um i'll just never forget that that feeling it's you know it's so different when you're actually hearing the drums and it's like you know as opposed to just phone books and um it was life shaping the the uh the interesting thing is that uh, as you're telling this story i'm thinking right in the beginning of the story yellow pages and it's such a – this is – and I'm not even saying this to be funny. I bet there's a lot of people listening who don't understand what the yellow pages are or were. <laughs> you know, what, like it just I – mean, just speaking of like technology, you know, like yeah. – Yep. It's so true. for anyone listening, there were these things that they put out called phone books. And they the yellow pages were the ads – or not the ads but the businesses and there was the white pages where you could look up people's phone numbers. But they were big – thick books and they would drop them off at your front door what every year or something every every six months maybe and that's how you looked up people's phone numbers before the internet or you know or you could call information it was the google of then yeah it's and 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 i'm not and you know a lot of times i'm like for all of you who don't know who tapes are but like the yellow pages are a real thing that are just if you were born you know after probably 99 you probably you know have no idea what they are. It's just just to me because we're going to get into conversations about technology and things like that for sure. And uh, it's just an interesting it's just an interesting thing as you're saying that that they don't exist anymore. You know. Yep, amazing. So your your career 
has so many twists and turns and there's so many different things that you do. There's so many things that you've accomplished. There's so many things that you're involved in. When someone, when someone asks you what you do, how do you explain that to people? That's a great question because that comes up all the time. And it's interesting that my career has been so multifaceted and I've been able to go deep in really what I call even many areas Whereas one of them would be a, a specialty and a, and a really convenient label. But as soon as you start combining them and they all come from my passion, which is not something that has the most clear methodology, uh, you know, it's it, it's very hard to describe it. Uh, the best compliment I ever got is when Noah Lee from Monster Cable called me a renaissance man. Um, but really, it's just being multifaceted and – there's a term called technologist that people have used to describe me, and I thought it was a term that anybody who's into multiple areas of music and technology was was called. But turns out that uh, I've been kind of credited with like that's the term for David Frangioni. So I'm a technologist, and people go, "Okay, now now what is that? What does and that? Say, oh, you work on computers?" And you're like, "Not exactly." <laughs> well, right. I mean, well, that's one thing, right? But that's one <laughs> one hundredth, and so. It's this combination of music, drumming, business, consulting, MIDI, studio building, home theater integration, home automation, uh, design, installation, programming, artist development, um, authorship, uh, product development, drum sample libraries, um, and all of these things combined that essentially have been my career, music producing, of course, engineering, and having my own studio, doing a lot of mixing. And so, you know, as my career has continued to evolve, it's like you just, you, you, you climb a mountain, and then as soon as you get to the top of it, it unveils another mountain that you want to climb. And so, mm-hmm. you, and, it, and it just builds and feeds off of one thing to the next. So you're never leaving one thing to be good at something else. It's just you've accomplished something to the point where you you can professionally um, deliver that to a client and you understand it inside and out. So you keep getting better at that. But while you're getting better at that, you're getting good at something else as well. Mm-hmm. And and so it just keeps building because there's so many things related that, that don't seem related at, you know, just if you're labeling it. But when you really see what I do and how I do it, when I'm building a recording studio, it's giving me tremendous insight into how I can mix better. And when I'm right. mixing, it gives me tremendous insight into how I can build a better home theater for somebody and how I can do better, how I can get playback to sound more accurate in a, in a playback environment, whether that's a studio, a live venue, a, a theater, et cetera. When I'm programming uh, a Crestron system, it actually helps me understand MIDI quite a bit more. You know, it's a lot mm-hmm. of binary consistency in the protocols between them. And so everything just gives you more ability and more depth to the next thing. And, um, I was speaking with somebody the other day who was talking about the exact same question that you asked about, you know, how do you define uh, a career that has multifaceted components? 
And he said to me, the person who was asking me the question actually fed back and said, you know, in the 16th century, the, the, the true artisans were – they had the same exact approach. They, they didn't just sculpt. They didn't just paint. They actually made their own canvas. They actually mixed their own paint. They actually went out and found their own tools, and if there wasn't a tool available to create a certain output that they wanted from a sculpture, they would have to get somebody to make it or invent it. And they were really involved in every aspect of what they ultimately wanted to create. So I think mm-hmm. it's interesting as as technology gets greater and better every day and and just as a race and as a human kind we're just, you know, getting more and more and more advanced. Um and everybody just wants this simple label. But the fact is, there's really it's really great to have uh you know, all these different facets and aspects like the true artisans did centuries ago. It's really mm-hmm. helped me a lot. It's helped my clients get their goals achieved uh, very efficiently and um, and beyond their expectations. Mm-hmm. For sure. And to piggyback on what you said, I remember reading an article uh, a few months ago where the gist of the article was you don't have to be you don't have to be good at a lot of things. You have to be great at one thing and then from those things all of these other ancillary opportunities start to pop up and i believe that that's what you did your expertise from what i from what i understand in the beginning was midi and you and then that is what opened up the door for you to do all of these other things but you were great at this one thing and then once you mastered that Another door opened up and you said, oh, okay, let me try to master this thing. And then another door opens up and you say, let me try to master this thing. Would you – is that is that correct in me saying well, that? It's 100% correct. I'll just add that drumming was right before MIDI. So the, the, mm-hmm. the pattern that you accurately described um, started with drumming and that led to MIDI because I was in pursuit of all of these amazing sounds in the early to mid-80s that as a drummer – I was like, what? Like, I'm practicing and I'm studying with Joe Morello and Alan Dawson and Rod Morgenstein and going and taking lessons with Louis Belson whenever he's in town. And like, I'm taking it as far as I possibly can, trying to muster every little ability that I had inside of me. And, um, and then there's this whole other side of drumming that's coming up at that time that involves electronics, which was like the furthest thing in the world from Louis Belson lessons. And I'm like, I this is really fascinating. I was playing a lot of gigs, and I was Dave Weppel was coming on the scene, and he was doing amazing things with you know acoustic electric hybrids. Besides, mm-hmm. his amazing playing, and um, I was just really, really drawn to it. It was a very natural passion, and so that led to MIDI. And as I discovered MIDI. I absolutely wanted to be great at it. I wanted to – I just completely devoured every bit of information I could, every nook and cranny. It had a very natural um, ability with it. You know, mm-hmm. things would – to me much more quickly than other things would. You know, I would go into trigonometry class and, you know, take me a week to figure out one little thing. I'd go into MIDI aspects and I would have 15 different things mastered in two hours. There was just something that was very natural for me. And then from MIDI, it evolved exactly as you said. So this may be, well, before I ask this question, let's talk, I want to talk about 
the career arc. So once you, so as you said, you started really getting into MIDI, you started devouring it. And do you think that that's, would you say that, that you had a, a really successful drummer, drumming career or a more successful MIDI career? Oh, I think without a doubt, MIDI. Yeah. Um, my drumming career was successful in context. You know, I was progressing quite a bit as a drummer, uh, learning a lot and gigging a lot. But I was in Boston. Um, I wasn't playing with any big acts or doing any, you know, world class studio work. I mean, you know, this was from eight to 17 years old. So right. um, it was, yeah, it was pretty young. But nonetheless, the success of what I had going on with drumming was more of personal development and professional, um, you know, consistency, playing gigs and, and that kind of thing. Whereas getting into MIDI, it was an actual career that I established and then got a lot of clients that um, I never would have gotten as a drummer, by the way, because they all had great drummers in their bands or, mm -hmm. you know, artists already had great drummers uh, behind them. But as a technologist and as a MIDI person, they didn't have someone that they, uh, you know, had found and trusted and could deliver what they wanted until I came along, according to, to a lot of these clients. And um, and so, you know, it was just an incredible uh, launch pad uh, to work with, you know, artists starting, you know, in the, the 80s with Elton John and. Fred Czar and Aerosmith, of course, which ended up being like a 30-year uh, deal, and um, and Brian Adams and just all these great artists that uh, just one thing led to another. And, you know, you get referred and you start to amass a clientele and, and credits, as we all know, in the music business. And then it just – if you keep doing a good job and you're reliable and, you know, I've never done a drug, had a drink, or smoked a cigarette in my life. So I think that uh, having – you know, clarity and focus always on, uh, definitely helped me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then I just worked relentlessly, didn't take a vacation for at least 30 years and, uh, just worked really hard seven days a week and was able to build up a great clientele and career. Mm -hmm. What was the catalyst? What was or What was the sort of the first the first gig and how did you how did you land that? Because I think we always we, a lot of times we skip over you know it's like oh I started playing drums when I was seven and then you know I was gigging around and then I got the gig with you know Justin Timberlake and we're like whoa 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 let's <laughs> let's uh let's unpack that a little bit and see if we can connect some of those dots to because because I think that I think it helps the audience to understand sort of steps that were taken or, or things that they can extract and, and use in their own career. Absolutely. And uh, my story ho will hopefully reach a lot of people and, and they'll understand that it's it's real and that it can be duplicated by anybody uh, if they follow uh, at least mostly what I did. So in my case, we already know that, OK, I, you know, I worked really, really hard, put in a lot of hours, not only to be good at what I was doing, but to go out and network and find clients so I can make a living at what I was doing. And one of the the real breakthroughs was Gene Jolly, who was the president of EU Wurlitzer, which was a like a five store chain in Boston at the time. Mm -hmm. Now I think is with QSC. He's had an incredible career in the uh, in the the music equipment business, and um, he really believed in me. 
And I went to him and I said, Gene, can you bring me into EU Wurlitzer as as your technology guy? Because you're selling all this equipment. It's brand new to everybody. You know, we're in the mid to late 80s right now. And I saw that there was a real hole. You know, there was no geek squad or anything like that. Like there was just nobody was was offering any support. And this product is just flooding the market. And there's a million different things you can do with it. And there wasn't really anybody to help you with it. So I said, what if I am your in-house guy? And he said, well, I, I can't bring you on as my in-house guy. But what I can do is I can support you as our preferred guy. So I went and I made laminated posters and I put a, I glued a little plastic business card holder to the bottom of them. And I made like 10 of them. And I printed out my business cards, got a phone number, 1-800-345-MIDI. And, <laughs> nice. And um, yeah, I mean the phone literally rang in my bedroom. And, um, and I went out and I put them up, the posters up at all the Wurlitzers around their stores. And Gene was very supportive and told all the managers at all the stores, hey, David's going to come by, introduce himself and put these posters up. And it really was a huge um, – you know, moment because it opened up a lot of clients that I could now work full time doing this, make a living and learn because every client had a different configuration that he, that they needed help with. So I was really exposed to like almost every conceivable MIDI configuration because I was working with so many different people that had bought all different sets of equipment. And in many cases, I didn't. I had never even worked with the stuff that I was going to help them with. But as I said, I had a natural, um, just kind of understanding of it. So I was always able to help people and always able to get them through it really fast and, you know, be, uh, offer a lot of value. And in the meantime, I was learning things as we were going, and it was really, uh, it was awesome. Well, in the middle of that, uh, I was also going around working, you know, at all going to all the studios and asking them if they needed any help with MIDI. And there were people that said yes. And, you know, I was able to get clients there. And in all of this networking and EU Wurlitzer, Tom Hamilton, the bass player from Aerosmith, called me and said he had been referred to me, which I believe came from one of the Wurlitzer people. Mm -hmm. And um, he had a, a songwriting MIDI rig at his house that he needed help with. And um, I went and I helped him, and we really hit it off. And I went there a few times to work with them and kind of get all the stuff connected and running. And and um, he said to me, he called me up like after we worked together for a few weeks, and I thought he was calling me to book another uh, session. And of course, remember, there's no email, there's no internet. You know, people actually pick up the phone and call you, and there's no cell phones really, even as well. So like mm -hmm. calling actual landline and um he calls me up and says hey would you you know i'm not making any promises but would you be willing to come down and meet the band and uh and we're starting to experiment with different types of technology um to you know just work within our music and um would you be willing to of course he's talking about aerosmith and he didn't even finish the sentence, and I said name, address, location. Right. <laughs> and so I was going to say on the way, you know, I would be thinking after I get that call, like, okay, I made it. 
<laughs> yeah, right. I mean, and all you've done is gotten the call, right? So right. <laughs> that is true. It's it definitely, you know, that that's that's part of the dream that we live. You know, I always I always dreamt I always dreamt and dream big and I always dream bigger than wherever I am at that moment mm-hmm. and uh and just try to do everything that I can to achieve that. And um you know, I went down met the band. They were rehearsing and uh it was awesome. They I hit it off with Steven Tyler immediately and and then, you know, shortly thereafter became their in-house engineer, kind of one-man show guy when they were writing songs and working in their home studios, which I ended up building for them. And it was just a really great tenure. Um, the, the meat of that time, the real heavy lifting for me and Aerosmith was from like 89 to 2001. Mm-hmm. And so that was, and you know, in that period they did pump, get a grip, big ones, nine lives, self sanity, um, just push play couple of greatest hits things couple of soundtrack songs don't want to miss a thing from Armageddon. so that that whole period um it and in hindsight ended up being you know a really remarkable period of time for aerosmith music that uh you know represents the second phase of their incredible career and probably the last of anything like that from them for all of those records and the, and the amazing uh songs that they had um and so it was just a, uh, you know, great, just great experience. Sure. I, I, so how do you, once you start building this roster of, of, uh, of clients and things like that, how do you start branching off into other things? Is there, is it out of, is it out of necessity? Is it out of, you see opportunity ahead and you say, Hey, maybe I can, I can transition into these other things. Or are you sort of like I am where when you're doing one thing, well, you, you figure, Hey, let me see if I can, uh, let me see if I can, you know, conquer another thing or climb another mountain, as you said. Well, um, it's kind of yes to all, you know, part of like starting audio one was out of necessity because I realized that, I can only be in one place at one time, even if I'm multitasking, which I usually am. And uh, so I need a team. You know, I need an actual Mm -hmm. company. I need to find like-minded people that – and that was really hard to do, by the way, and still is, where you find people that really buy into, you know, your way of doing things and your philosophy and how to treat your clients and um, that's how Audio One started, and that was it was first just doing recording studios, and then it and, and MIDI consulting, and then it built up to home theaters and home automation, which ended up being a great business thing because as studios started to change form as to what the business side of that looks like, home theaters and home automation blew up as an industry, and people just you know there's just right. people that that want what Audio One does in that space. Because um, we work only at the very high end of that space, so we're working in large condos and and large estate homes, and the systems are very sophisticated, and um, they're integrated, you know, from many different facets, from security to, you know, sound and lighting control and motorized window treatments and you know, gate control and heated pools and all of these things that all integrate together right. as home automation. So. You know, that's how that business started. And then and I think that a lot of what 
I've done has happened like that. It's all been very natural, very, very much uh, from my passion of what I love to do and what I want to do in my life every day. Um, it's funny because it's I don't ever have much time to do it for myself, even though that's why <laughs> I'm doing it, right? So I'm like doing it for everybody else so I can do it and do what I love every day and make a living at it and and not have a job, you know, just, you know, have a career that I work hard at as opposed to a job that I slave at. Um, and I and I watched my parents work really hard and I watched them not do what they were really passionate about as much as they wanted to because they had to have a job. And it was a really uh, riveting experience that I always said, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do what I love to do. I'm not going to follow this this mentality, this post-depression mentality that I understand why it exists and I understand the necessity of it, but I'm going to find a way to make a living doing what I love. And mm -hmm. so that's what I've done and um, and was able to do from a very young age. Um, and then once in a while, the whole catalyst for all these things, which is my passion for them, whether it's playing the drums or whether it's putting together my own home theater or, you know, audio file playback system or, or whatever it is. Uh, once in a while, I actually find time for that. Hey, do yourself a favor and check out Promark's Select Bounce Drumsticks. These sticks give players the ability to fine-tune their standard stick model to fit their playing style. Let me give you an example. If you play rock or country or metal, check out the forward balance. These are front-weighted and give you enhanced power and speed. If you are playing jazz or funk or gospel, then check out the rebound balance. These are rear-weighted and gives you more finesse and more agility. Plus, they're made by Promark, which you know you're going to get a quality product because they control the entire process from the forest to the finished drumstick. Plus, they're paired by pitch and by weight, so there's zero guesswork when you're grabbing that stick out of your stick bag. Do yourself a favor. Check them out by going to Promark.com. So let me ask you this, and I, I obviously you and I don't know each other very well, but I'm going to take a stab in the dark here and say that you're a good businessman and you understand how to build a business. And whether you learned how to do that or whether that is an innate ability, that's – I don't know. But what do you say to people who say that they want to do something that they love for a living but they have – no business sense. They have no business skills. They don't understand how to do it. They're they just they can't figure out how to make money at it or or anything like that. What advice do you have? That you've got to make a very firm decision. And that is that ideally you work for somebody that you respect and that gives you the ability to do what you love to do as a career but without all the responsibility and the vision and the uh, the risk, quite frankly, of being a businessman. Mm -hmm. If you really think you like being a businessman, then go for it and and become a businessman and then create the you know the holding place for your career. But more often than not, it better suits someone to work for somebody that they really trust and gives them the opportunity and the living that they want because being a businessman is really, really risky. Mm, and it, oh, I it's, get not, it. <laughs> it's not for everybody. Um, I call it legalized gambling. That's really what being an entrepreneur is. Yep. And 
Um, and you're right. You know, I, I have had a very successful career as a businessman, and I and I have a multifaceted business career as well. Um, it all kind of fits together, but that is not for everybody. And um, and I didn't realize that because you know you only know what you see, especially when mm-hmm. you're young. So. I just thought that everybody was an entrepreneur when I was starting and like the only way you did it was you went out and you did it yourself and like I just had this whole view that this is how the world worked but as you get older and wiser and you do it for many years which this is what probably like my 36th year or something um, it's uh, you know it's it's not the case you know mm-hmm. there's everybody has you know their their calling and their their lane that that is their optimum place to be and uh, the sooner you can find that and and be comfortable in it and not mm-hmm. fight, uh, the better. Yeah, I I agree that um, thinking that everyone was an entrepreneur, or thinking that everyone understood business. I was the same way. I grew up in an extremely successful entrepreneurial family. You know, I've owned a ton of businesses, not a ton, but five different businesses myself. That's a ton. <laughs> and and I just figured, you know, everyone understands business and foolishly, you know, thought that for a long time until I started working with a lot more artists and people were like, how do you know all this stuff? And I was like, oh, I thought everyone knew this. Yeah, so, it's interesting, isn't it? That's, it that's is. exactly right. I didn't have the entrepreneurial successful family to launch from as you did, which is a blessing for you that I, you know, that's awesome. Sure. Uh, but it's the same exact mindset. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. just, we grew up in parallel there. And then it's just amazing to, to see that people, not you know, when you finally realize that everybody has their their sweet spot of what's best for them, you you it really it's a very powerful place to be, right? When you finally mm-hmm. realized it, you it made you so much more powerful because you could say, oh, okay. I'll utilize these people with this opportunity. They'll make a great living. They'll feed their family. I'll get my clients' needs met. My company will run better. Like all of these awesome things happen because you suddenly realize how the perfect pieces fit into the puzzle. Right, right. Or on the flip side, maybe you fit into someone else's puzzle. You know, and you're like you said, go. Maybe you do go work for someone, and that's the better. That's the better plan. And I think a lot of times we, you know, we get on social media and we see that being your own boss is is the new cool thing, and being an entrepreneur is is the thing that you should do. When it's like maybe you should just go work for someone, and you would be very successful at doing that. So I agree, and I think it's all in in who you find. Mm-hmm. I think that's the key thing. Don't jump around jobs and have a resume that has 15 different places in 10 years, but don't settle either. Find, right. be, be careful and be, be in a, I'd like to see the new modern. So when I say that, meaning the evolution from the post-depression, post-war mentality that so many of us have grown up with in one form or another, I'd like to see the new modern be that Going to interview for a job is an actually a two-way interview. Yeah. This whole mindset that the person offering the job is 100% in charge is old news. Mm-hmm. It, it, people are so powerful today in what they know and what they've learned and what they have access to for whatever it is they want to accomplish that they show up to an opportunity that's available 
And they need to figure out if they're the right fit as much as the person hiring them needs to figure that out. And, mm -hmm. and obviously in the big corporate world where it's resumes and three layers of interviews and all that stuff, you know, it gets to be a lot more political and there's a lot of more elements to it. But in our field of high level music where you're, you know, you're auditioning for an artist or you're meeting with, you know, a really high level boutique management company or sound company or recording studio, et cetera. Uh, you know, there's it's a two way street because you're going to give them everything you've got and you have a certain skill set that I'm sure is valuable and unique. And I've certainly found at Audio One that when we hire people, you know, it's really hard to find great people and uh, who are skilled in the different areas that we need them to be. So when you finally find those people, you want them to be as committed to doing it for you and really being in it for the long haul as, as you are to giving them a job and and the opportunity to build a career. So I'd like to see that as the new modern. What do you think? Uh, I agree. I, I, I've always said that I work for my employees, not the other way around. Um, but I also think that we a lot of times are looking at people like they're not only the gatekeepers, but we're sort of asking them their permission, which I don't think we need people's permission anymore. So I think the power is on the other side now than versus, you know, before where it's like, you're lucky to be working with me. It's, it's also like, well, you're lucky to have me as well. Yeah. So, um, I, I 100% agree with that. Uh, what, what's your take on, on doing something outside of the career outside of the, the field of, of, uh, of work that you want to do to supplement the things that you want to do. I had a really good conversation with, with Mark Giuliana last week about this, you know, about the quote unquote having a day gig versus, you know, just, just doing the thing that you want to do full time and, and, you know, maybe not being able to pay your bills or, or at least, you know, or even just trying to go down that road. Uh, what's your take on that? Um, I think that, the sooner you can do what you do um, and not have something else distracting you, the better. You know, I think that um, it leads to a whole nother thing, right? Because now you got to think about, well, what do you need to live? And it's amazing how simple it sounds, but it's not simple at all because some people, um, you know, could retire on a thousand dollars a month. And there's right. other people that couldn't retire on $50,000 a month. So it really comes down to, you know, if you really want to be committed like that and you, you need to be, you need to put yourself in a place where you can dedicate all of your time to not having a day gig and, and only having the gig of your dreams. And that's going to be, you know, unless you've somehow saved money or you have a family member helping you or, or something like that, you're going to, uh, you know, you're going to have to find a balance between a living and, and what you love to do. One of the things I did early on is I gigged with cover bands. And so even though I hated playing covers, um, I shouldn't say hate, but I didn't really enjoy it. I didn't enjoy the bars. I didn't enjoy the hours. I didn't enjoy a lot of the music we were playing, but I loved playing the drums and I was getting better at playing with the band and understanding, you know, setups and tear downs and all these different things um, as we were going on. And, um, and that was really helpful, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, 
before that, you know, I had oddball jobs. I was working in a supermarket when I was a kid and I was working at a car dealership in the parts cashier department and like doing stuff I hated. But I only did them for very short periods of time because I was really driven to like, okay, how do I, if I'm making, you know, if I'm working, if I'm burning all these hours doing something I hate and it has nothing to do with the betterment of my future, but it, of course it's keeping me alive today, how do I, how do I take those same amount of hours and the same and the money that I'm bringing in from that and work either the same or fewer hours at something that's actually going towards my long plan, my big picture, which is at that time playing and then a little bit after that technology, and I and that's where I found cover bands and pickup gigs and and then that led to the consulting, and um, you know I was able to really from the age of 16 on just do what I loved to do even if it wasn't entirely what I loved it was all related and I didn't have to get sucked into the day gig world mm -hmm. that uh, I think you know you have to be careful because it can really it can suck the life out of you you know you can get yeah. unbalanced the other way you know I always say do what you love to do and be disciplined and hardworking and focused on it and the rest will come together. You're, it's amazing how opportunities will, will appear because the integrity of what you're doing is so real and so and you're working so hard at it. There really is something to law of attraction. There really is something to, to like finds like. And it's happened my whole life. I mean I come from really nothing and everything's been built – the Rolodex of all these amazing clients and artists and the platinum records and the accolades and the this and the that and all of these things that we could talk about literally for days started from nothing. Mm -hmm. And so that is the, you know, that's what you have to remember is that if, if someone can take something from nothing and just have so much drive and focus, um, then anybody can, but you have to have that, that you have to have that, that piece you have to have those components and i i just was really intent on making sure that um you know that i i i could i didn't have to look back that i could just i could do what i love to do and um live the fullest life that i could that was really you know i was just driven to uh to the brink with that desire and i still am it hasn't changed i love that there's well, there's a lot interesting that you said there, but one of the things that really stuck out to me was the the idea of creating something out of nothing. And there's it's always interesting to me the steps between zero and one. So you today you decide, okay, this is the thing that I want to do, whether it be a career in drumming or starting a AV company or whatever it is. You say, okay, this is the thing I want to do. Tomorrow morning, when you wake up, what do you do? And that's always been the interesting thing is because I think that we skip over that a lot and understanding, one, how to start and two, how to learn, which sounds foolish, but how do you learn these things? I would love to hear you unpack some of that stuff because I think getting started is the hardest part. And I think that's the part where we have paralysis by analysis and we just end up not doing anything because we don't know what to do, where to start, how to learn, you know, how to build. 
Well, I, you know, it's funny. That's exactly one of my sayings. <laughs> paralysis, analysis equals paralysis. I yeah. actually first read that in a Donald Trump business book in the 80s. Nice. Um, one of his sayings um, when he was building all of his, his Trump towers and all that. And uh, and it's very true. Para- analysis does equal paralysis. And, and, and speaking to that exact point, a lot of people say, you know, when I'm ready – or when this happens, I'll do that. And that's mm-hmm. just a fear, you know, component because you'll never be ready. And that will never happen. You know, the stars are never going to align so perfectly that, you know, okay, now's the time. I mean, I, I mixed an album a few years ago for an artist and we were like almost done with the, the I produced and mixed it. And we were almost done with it. And the artist was like, oh, I want to make all these changes now and they ended up doing all these other things to it and then they were almost done with those changes and then they ended up doing a whole nother set of changes and it hit me really clearly like I saw what was going on. I'm like this artist is scared to death of ever releasing this stuff mm-hmm. and you know that was six years ago and they're still working on the same record. Ugh. They're just literally – they don't realize they're in this paralysis that they're so scared of putting the record out um, that it's just, you know, there's always going to be something wrong. So, excuse me, you really have to jump and the net will appear is what Wayne Dyer said. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's, you know, that's been my philosophy and, and consistent with that. My philosophy also is that you can't teach someone how to swim on a whiteboard. You know, we can, we can show them the strokes to swimming and we can talk about the different currents and, you know, we can give them a lot of intellectual knowledge that you have to get in a classroom and looking at, a, at an expert instructor. But in order to truly be a great swimmer, at some point you got to jump in and swim and no one go, jumps in and swims for the first time, even if they're a prodigy and they swim perfectly, they're still going to have a lot of things they can learn and improve on and grow from, but they got to do it in the pool. And that's where, uh, or in the water, and that's where it, it's, you know, that step from zero to one, you've got to get, you got to get past your fear. And in order to get past your fear, you have to be aware that you have a fear and it's holding you back. And if you don't have a fear holding you back, then you'll be doing it. So it's going to be one or the other. So if you find yourself in that zero place, finding like one just isn't happening, I can't get to one, so therefore I can't get to two, et cetera, then you've got to become self-aware of what fear is holding you back because I guarantee that that's all that's going on. And I don't say that lightly, but at least you'll be able to identify that you have that going on and then hopefully identify um, what it is so you can overcome it. And then you'll take the step. And one will not be perfect. Step two will not be perfect, but by the time you get to step three or four, it'll start to make sense and you'll start to see what's going on and where you want to go and how you think you're going to get there. And, you know, things will start coming together. But um, there's a reason why success happens to so few people. It's because most people just can't get from that zero to one. Mm-hmm. And fear is a real thing, you know. It it it'll uh, it'll lie to you, and it will convince you things that are that are not true, and and it'll it'll definitely you know hold you back. I think we all suffer from it on on one level or not, or another. 
and uh, you know, I've seen the I've seen the effects. I've also seen the absence of it, and and the doors sort of open up for you. Um, the one the one other thing that that I mentioned is about about learning. Do you have any steps or processes that you that you employ to learn, whether it be new skills, new industries? Um, you know, if if you say, okay, tomorrow I'm going to start a, you know. Uh, what I know, all right, you do artist development. So if you wanted to start that company tomorrow, how would you do it? Um, and well, you do not really didn't know much about it, or you know didn't have much connections, or. <clears throat> well, the first thing is you have to have a, a solid intention of what it is that you want to do, and the second thing is you have to make sure that you're really good at it. I'm not saying wait until you're the greatest at it ever because as we just talked about that's only going to come with doing it. So there's mm-hmm. that, you know, there's that that uh that push pull, you know, of like okay, well when is, you know, when am I good enough to do it? At some point you'll know. Uh but you've got to those are the first two steps is you've got to be clear on what you want to do and then you've got to make sure that you're you know that you're good enough to do it either you yourself or you put a team together so you know you can think of it in you know artist development is a fairly complex business and uh obviously as you said i have a business ida inspire and develop artists all access ida is what it's called and it's a successful artist development business we have a very clear lane that we operate in and how we help artists what kind of artists we help like there's a lot of definition in in what we do and how we do it and who we do it for and that's really uh you know that's 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 a really important thing but if we if you want to understand the whole idea as you just asked you break it down to a simpler business like if you're let's say your dream is to have a bakery well if you're the baker then okay, that's a big part of it because you know, like, okay, it's gonna be my cupcakes and my, you know, my bread and this and that. And it's like, you know, this is gonna be like, that's the the whole premise of it is this dream of your actual baked goods that now you have to figure out the rest of, okay, how much staff do I need? How much is gonna cost to launch? But there's so much clarity because it's your art that that you wanna bring to the world and it's fueling your dream. There are people who have the dream of a bakery and they're not bakers. So, but they want to have a bakery. And so at that point, now you've got to find the baked goods and find what it, you know, who, who can bake that represents what it is that you want to offer the world that you think is unique and different and valuable. And, um, and then put the rest of the team together around that. So, you know, that's, that's how you have to look at any business is, you know, what's fueling you. What what are you what are your objectives? What are you bringing to people that's unique and valuable? And then how are you going to put that together? And uh, sometimes the first brush at it is not the one that is going to be launched. You know, you might if we use the bakery example, you might put all the numbers together and go, wait a second, this is five hundred thousand dollars to launch this bakery. Like that's not realistic for me right now. And then you look at it real clearly. You go, oh well. That's because I was going to lease all of this bakery equipment and uh, and that was going to be 300,000 of it. But I can actually find a bakery that's gone out of business and all the equipment's there 
and I can jump in for 200,000 now. And, mm -hmm. you know, so there's all kinds of ways, or, you know, maybe I thought I needed to serve 50 people at my bakery, but when I scaled it to starting out by serving 20 people, I could still stay cash flow positive um, and build it up and get in at a place where I can actually start and launch. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's all in the, in the early development and analysis part. But again, we're not stuck in it. You know, as you right. see from just these, these simple examples, we're constantly course correcting. So we don't get stuck. As soon as somebody says 500,000 and we feel like, okay, we could never get 500,000 right now, we don't stop. Or we don't say, okay, well, when we can get 500,000, then we'll do it because that, that might be never unless you really have a solid plan that you might be able to execute. So you've got to course correct immediately and go, okay, how do I keep this on track? How do I do this? Yep. Yep. I think the uh, the idea of building up is something that <laughs> that a lot of people miss because we have these grand ideas of all of these things that we want to do. We want to start this career, or we want to. You know, I always tell people like if you, if you want to get the gig for Justin Timberlake, and right now you play in your basement, you're not going to go from that to playing with Justin Timberlake. So why don't you go and find someone that's a little bit playing you know, a little bit better gigs than you are and then start getting in that scene and then build it up from there and then build it up from there. Or you know, if it's a business that you want to have nine different verticals of things that you do, let's start with the first one and let's try to figure out the first one instead of trying to do all 87 things all at the same time because that to me is overwhelming. That And you just can't do it either. You have to, you have to slowly take one, you know, take one step and build it on top of the next. So. Yeah, that's exactly right. So talk to me about this book that you wrote called Crash. Well, Crash is something that I'm really passionate about. Um, I wrote the drum book, the drum set book that I would always want for myself. And I took all of these iconic drum sets that I had collected over the years that were a passion of mine um, and that are part of my nonprofit Frangioni Foundation. And, um, and I put together a book where – I had Mark Weiss come in, who's a you know great rock photographer, and he shot mm -hmm. all these drum kits, and um, and you can go through the book and you can read it if you really want to, and and uh, you know look at all the details and the history of the different drummers and drum kits, or you can just thumb through it and look at the pictures, and it's just so much fun and so exciting, and I really believe that you know you you get what you give. You know, I, I think that it's it's as important to give back as it is to receive. And um, and, in, and in fact, my crash book, if you go to crashbook.net, I have a giveaway where I give away signed copies of the book on a regular basis. So you can always enter this contest. So, you know, if you buy the book, the proceeds go to the nonprofit, but you can actually win the book as well. And we'll send you a copy. You just got to go to crashbook.net and sign up. And the book has, you know, Carmine Peace and Buddy Rich and Neil Peart and Carl Palmer and Alex Van Halen and Eric Singer and Peter Chris and so many great drum kits and drummers um, that it's uh, it's just a lot of fun. It's, it's amazing to see like Greg Bissonette's Eat Him and Smile, David Lee Roth, Cannonball drum kit that he had made that Pat Foley custom painted and you have all this up close and personal 
you know, all these views of it and Ringo Starr's iconic Beatles kits from his Ed Sullivan kit all the way to Let It Be. Um, and, you know, you have these Alex Van Halen kits that he played that the kit itself, one of them was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for years, his Invasion kit. Um, and there's just so much fun to look at. Carmine's realistic rock kit that hundreds of thousands of us grew up yeah. looking at that cover, right? When in the seventies and eighties, we like got that drum book. We not only learned a lot from it, but we looked at that cover and just went, Oh, this kit is so freaking cool. <laughs> and, um, and we have the kit in there. So it's really, uh, it's really awesome. The book is, it's a lot of fun. And anybody who loves drums, drumming, drum sets, any style of music, really, you'll just enjoy this coffee table book a lot. Nice, nice. And uh, so you were saying that it's part of your foundation, meaning the proceeds go to the foundation? Yep, a portion of the proceeds go to Frangioni Foundation. We have a private museum where the kits are set up, and we partner with other foundations to be the drumming component of Make-A-Wish, Iree Foundation, Jason Taylor Foundation, um, Guitars Over Guns, Musicians on Call, and um, these great foundations that are out there doing their own thing. But when they need a drumming component or there's a way for us to participate, like I musical direct for the IRE Foundation, I musical directed for a few years for Phil Collins' Little Dreams Foundation. Um, when they have a need that uh, the Frangioni Foundation can contribute, uh, it's just an incredible synergy and you know we're just – changing kids' lives, inspiring them, giving them hope, giving them opportunity, giving them insight that they would otherwise never have. And the museum is just a wonderful place, and we do it entirely as nonprofit, and the book is a component to that. Most people will never visit the museum, uh, but everybody can have the book. That's great. I, lo I love the fact that you're involved with all these other all these other. Uh, organizations because i'm guessing a lot of them need you know they need a component of of music or they need a component of specifically drums or something like that and rather than having to to sort of build out that component themselves they can just they can go through you which is cool yeah exactly and it's uh and, and it's great because it's really efficient we do what we do best mm -hmm. and they and they can focus on what they do best and it's inevitable that uh, within these different foundations that involve music so heavily uh, that there's going to be really specific drumming moments that um, that will help their organization and we're there for them. I like it. So one so last question about – go ahead. We need everybody to go to crashbook.net. Crashbook.net is the way to go and check out the book and again the proceeds benefit uh, the Frangioni Foundation. I recommend people do that. And I have one question, one other question, because we've talked about how you're a renaissance man. We also talk, we've talked about how as musicians, drummers, you know, or other musicians have to have multiple irons in the fire, or there's all of these things that we do, especially if you're trying to do this as a full-time career, you know, you may have, you may be doing clinics and writing books and playing gigs and teaching lessons and all of that sort of stuff. To me, it always comes down to time management and, and, and effectively handling your day do you have any do you have any sort of systems that you have in place for your own day or do you have a certain way that you structure your day i'm guessing that you do but uh would love to hear a little bit about that that you can share with the audience well with without a doubt um 
time management is huge. Um, and I use, you know, to do lists and I use, I use the technology, uh, to speed things up for me and to keep track, uh, you know, between calendar and to do's and, and an email organization system that essentially is like a virtual assistant where I can keep track of everything that I'm doing and everything that's coming up because I'm booked for certain things, you know, a year from now. So there's a lot to keep track of, of where I'll be and what logistics are required and what I need to prepare for, um, between projects and speaking engagements and sessions and, you know, all the different things that I'm doing. And, you know, if I'm right from writing another book, like all of these things have to get factored into a 24 hour day, um, and which day and how many hours that day, et cetera. So I utilize, um, you know, technology to help me with that and, um, and stick to it, you know, and, um, it's, it's as much a part of, of what I do as, as anything else. Um, and it's on me, right? So if I mm-hmm. don't, if I don't keep myself organized and I don't effectively plan everything and then stick to it, then it falls apart fast or would right. fall apart if I let that happen. But I, I'm, you know, I'm disciplined about, um, you know, doing what uh, I've committed to do, um, whether it's specifically a meeting or a client or if it's just for me. You know, like if I'm training in the gym, you know, like that gets carved out, like which which I do it in the morning, right? Because I want to get it out of the way first and, mm-hmm. and work. I like to work on those types of things where it's my own personal development. I like to do that really early before any of the client stuff starts flying in. Right. So I like to just be at peace and start the day without interruptions and and get the day off to a really strong start where I can focus, meditate, get the day going, and then jump into all the madness of business and life. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I schedule all that stuff in the mornings. And then by the time 8 o'clock comes around or 7.30, um, you know, it's all done. And then when all the rest of, you know, of, of the world is kind of getting online and, and starting to go, then, um, you know, I've already – I've got a good foundation going, but all of that definitely is time management and, and staying disciplined and committed to the time management that you've put together. Mm-hmm. Super important. I think we, we, uh, we tend to get distracted easily. And I believe that if it's not, if it's not scheduled or written down, you will inevitably come up with an excuse of why you can't do it today or, while you'll do it later and then you don't end up doing it or whatever the case may be. So I think that scheduling it, like you said, and making sure that it's, you know, it's on your calendar, you're committed to it because like this conversation you and I are having today, it's on the calendar. We're going to do it. But if we say you and I emailed back and forth and we say, Oh yeah, we'll get to it. You know, one of these days, just, you know, we can bounce back some bounce back emails back and forth and it would never happen. So I believe that you schedule it, it gets done. Absolutely. And, um, that's right. And it's, it's easier said than done, For um, sure. but, you, you know, but you, but you gotta do it. And by the way, I love your, uh, for the, you know, this is a behind the scenes thing, but I'll share it with right. your listeners that I love the way you do your, your calendar organization, because you are one of the few, uh, interviews that I've done and I've done tons and tons of them, but you're one of the few that 
I had to make a scheduling change to our interview. And all I had to do with your system is just click reschedule for this interview. It showed me your available times. I clicked one and boom, here we are. But I swear it was like so freaking easy and painless. I was like, wow, this is <laughs> this is crazy. Like I just this took five seconds and I've got a new time and I haven't upset Nick and I haven't like screwed his schedule up and there's yeah. no back and forth and he's not we're not waiting for emails. Like it took five seconds to get a new time and here we are. So thank you for that system. Well, Keep it up. That's uh that's good to know because I try to make it as, as easy and as painless as as possible. And and it's all automated. So you get an email with the new time. I get an email saying that you changed your time. It automatically adds it to my calendar. I'm like it's it's for, it's the best, uh, I think, $10 a month I've ever spent in my life. So, Well, I, I second that. <laughs> as long as it's saving other people time and saving me time, I love it. So It's just great. It's, and it's a perfect example of using technology. You don't have to have a person doing it. You don't have to take your own time doing it. You're utilizing technology to do something that you know five years ago might not have been possible at all and three years ago might have cost – thousands of dollars to custom build right. and today it's just a ten dollar a month subscription and it's it's like having a full-time assistant yep for sure and you know frankly the the biggest thing is this is your time is valuable to me and the listener's time is valuable to me too so i never i never take that for granted and i'm very protective of my time and i'm protective of other people's time or respective uh, um you know, respectable about other people's time. So I want to make sure that it's as easy as possible for you to schedule something with me. We start on time, we end, you know, we end on time and, and the listeners know that, that, you know, the new episodes are going to come out on Monday and, and they're going to be packed with value. So to me, that's, that's something that's really important. So I appreciate you, you know, saying that, but, but, uh, that's the, the main reason behind it. Yeah. Well, great. I love it. Good deal. Well, David, I want to, again, uh, like I said, I, I respect your time. So I thank you very much for taking the time to chat. It's been eye-opening to say the least. I congratulate you on all the success that you've had, not only in, in one particular thing, but you've done it in multiple things, which means to me, one, uh, it is repeatable. And I think that you know, you're know you not this anomaly. You are someone who worked hard and has a, has a focused determination of how you're going to achieve things but it's good news for everyone listening that it's repeatable people can do the things that they want to do as long as they're willing to to put in the work and and stay disciplined and and really learn their craft so i applaud you for that and again i thank you for for taking so much time to chat with me well thank you very much it's an honor to be here with you and your listeners and uh, absolutely if i can accomplish something anybody can because we all have that same opportunity and um, it's just a matter of, of putting the work in and being really committed and finding your passion. And, um, you know, just uh, everybody, thanks for listening. Check out CrashBook.net. And um, I wish everyone the best. David, thanks again. Appreciate you. Bye-bye. There you have it, the one and only David Frangioni. Also, if you want to enter to win a free copy of his book, Crash, the World's Greatest Drum Kits, be sure to go to CrashBook.net. Check it out, CrashBook.net. And for all the show notes for everything we talk about, you can go to DrummersResource.com forward slash session 479. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.